The second commandment tells us the story of how God has created us to be his image bearers and called us to imitate him in the ways we create and cultivate. Join Dr. Brown to learn what the second word tells us about God's image. This is Hearing is Believing. You know, they say that imitation is the greatest form of flattery. We're in that stage of life where I do something and my little children want to do it too. So my, when I go to shave, my little boys, they want to join me in shaving. Uh, when I jump, they want to jump. When I go here, they want to go here. They want to do what I do. Imitation is fun. We're at that stage of parenting where imitation is fun. But imitation is also that tough part of being a parent. When I say something, uh, when I correct the older one of my children, my little girl, when I correct her, she always reminds me, well, Daddy, you do it. So imitation is fun, but it's also that double-edged sword. And the reason that it's a double-edged sword is because of the imperfections that I bring to the imitation. The reason that it's a double-edged sword is because of my own imperfections. But you and I, I want to convey this truth to you, you and I are made to imitate God. We imitate God in our creaturely capacities. And what I mean by that is, according to how He has made us, we get the opportunity to imitate Him. You have been created to bear the image of God. And in that image bearing, as you and I bear the image of God, we provide a glimpse, however fleeting, However falling short, we provide a glimpse of the glory of God. We're considering these ten words together, or these ten commandments, and today we get the opportunity to look at the second word. So let's read it here in verse 4, and I'll read through verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those that hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands and those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word, and through this word we pray that you would shape us and fashion us, conform us into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. So look at that second word before you. That word there is telling a story. It's telling a story. And what I want to do this morning is I want us to walk through this word and learn the story that God is telling us. So number one, hopefully you're taking notes, number one write this down. God speaks, we listen. Number one, God speaks, we listen. And this second commandment concerns images. There's this prohibition that's in front of us, this prohibition of making images. And the reason that this commandment is so important is because of our own creation. You were created to make. You were created to make. And God comes with these ten words, and He directs our making. And He gives us these ten words to unite us to Himself. 
So if you were to go back and remember and recall, or maybe go back to Genesis chapter 1, you would see a phrase repeated ten times. And the phrase is, and God said. So God spoke ten words at the beginning of creation. And the relationship between God and man was interrupted. And it was interrupted because of our willful disobedience to what God said. And so now we fast forward the narrative from Genesis all the way to Exodus, and we see God coming again to his people to establish a relationship with them. And the way that he establishes the relationship with them is that he speaks. But he doesn't just speak, does he? He acts. He acts and he redeems them. Our relating to God is based upon redemption. And here's what I want you to understand. Redemption and obedience are not at odds. They're not fighting brothers. They're not at odds with one another. God speaks these ten words in order to conform the people who had gone astray back to his original image of creation. So the people had gone astray. They had gone their own way. And so God comes again. Remember, his words are what gives life. And so he comes again to give words again. And those words serve as a course correction. God created us with freedom. You have freedom. I have freedom. And it's in that freedom where things get a little messy. God created us with freedom. And that freedom, oftentimes, we use the freedom that God has given us as a covering for our own evil intentions. And so God uses this word that we have before us and these words that we have before us to conform the people of to conform the image of his creation and he says don't make an image so if we were to flip ahead just for example to Exodus chapter 32 just a few pages you see how quickly this command is violated Exodus chapter 32 my Bible has a heading on top of Exodus 32 it says the golden calf how quickly that they violated these life-giving words. And so, to reinforce the importance of God's word speaking to the people, that's what it says here in chapter 20 and verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, to reinforce the importance of them listening and hearing his word, Deuteronomy says this. Now pay attention. Deuteronomy 4, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Whenever the Bible says things like that, we need to pay really close attention. Watch yourselves very carefully. Why? Since you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of of any figure. So the Bible is emphasizing speaking. Why is speaking so important? Over and over again, the Bible emphasizes speaking. And over and over again, the Bible says to us that seeing and hearing are two different things. Seeing and hearing are two different things. With our eyes, listen, with our eyes we see, but with our ears we interpret. With our eyes we see, but with our ears we interpret. You and I, for example, we can go down through, walk through an art gallery, and we can look at the same picture, and we can get two different 
interpretations. We're guessing at what the picture is. And while we're arguing what the right perspective is, the artist of the painting, she comes. And she sits beside us and she silences us in our arguing and she tells us the true meaning of the painting. So you and I are looking at this and what we thought was a dark rain cloud in reality is really just the bottom of a boat. We thought that she was angry, but no, she's really not angry. She's really happy. The artist painted with purpose. And she is the only one qualified to come and interpret the painting to us like no one else can. With our eyes, we see, but with our ears, we interpret. Adam and Eve in the garden, you remember that story in Genesis chapter 3? They, the Bible says that they saw the fruit. When they saw the fruit, they judged, they scrutinized. They'd already received the word of the Lord. They'd already been confronted with the word of the Lord, even from the serpent. And then they saw they judged. They scrutinized. And when they disobeyed, what happened? Read the Bible closely in Genesis 3. When they disobeyed, the eyes of them were opened. And the moment their eyes were opened, instead of seeing beauty, they saw shame. And they felt regret. In that moment, they alienated themselves from God's Word. They alienated themselves from what God said, from His judgment. And instead, what did they do? They substituted their own judgment in the place of God. And what was the result? Disastrous. They heard. They saw. They judged. They scrutinized. They disregarded God's Word. And as a result, they failed. And here we have in Exodus chapter 20, God coming and speaking. God didn't come in the form with visible eyes. He wrapped himself in thunder and smoke, and then he spoke. And just as he spoke lovingly in the garden, calling Adam and Eve back to himself, so these ten words are his clarion call to us. Saying, pay attention. Don't take the fruit of what the world's offering. You'll die. You'll feel shame. You'll feel regret. And so God's focus is on hearing instead of seeing. When we hear, we receive. I love what Peter Lightheart says. He says, listening puts us in the position of being judged. Hearing opens an uncontrollable future. Someone says for the first time, I love you. And the world shifts beneath your feet. God speaks and we listen. Number two, secondly, I want us to notice the way that the second word is laid out. Look at what he's doing there. God is speaking in Genesis language. And if we were to go back and we were to read the Genesis account, look, for example, it says here, it says this heaven, this uh, Genesis language, it says, don't make a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, earth beneath, or water under the earth. That's Genesis language. If we were to go back to Genesis chapter 1, we would read that at the crown of God's creation is humanity. 
And at the crown of his creation is a humanity that he made in his image. God says, let us, don't miss this, let us make man in our image. We bear his image and we create. We bear his image and we create. Now, we don't create in the same way that God creates. God creates, he's the only one that can do this. God creates out of nothing. Our creation or our creativity is more of a subduing or a cultivating what God has already created. And so number two this morning, God created us to cultivate. God created you to cultivate. He speaks and we listen. He created us to cultivate. And this is the reason that this commandment is so important. This is the reason that this second word is so challenging. Did you know that we get the word culture from the word cultivate? So look around us. There's culture. Even in this church, there's culture. Some of you are suit and tie people every Sunday. Others of you are not suit and tie people every Sunday. There's a culture even within our church. Some of you are wondering where I'm not wearing a tie today. Anyway, you know, there's a culture even amongst our church. But look around us. There is all types of art, all types of music, all types of poetry, architecture, science, writing, sculpting, dance, painting, cooking, making, any type of creation, any type of creating. As my professors taught, creation, listen to this, creation is what God made out of nothing. Culture is what humans make out of God's good creation. Creation is what God made out of nothing. Culture is what humans make out of God's good creation. And I really want to hone in on this point because this is something totally different perhaps for a lot of you. That you think being a Christian is about just going to heaven when you die. As if you just come to church, say a prayer, live your best life, come to church, say a prayer, live your best life, and hope in between that time, if you die, you'll go to heaven because you've done all these right things. You're living your life. You're living your life just on a train, bound for glory, nothing else for you to do other than to just sit there and look at the world pass you by. But I really want to hone in on this point. I want you to have an understanding, a healthy understanding that you were created to cultivate. Because you shape what you do. Whatever you put your hands upon, you shape. As well as this, you are shaped by what you do. Not only do you shape what you do, inevitably you become shaped by what you do. You can't help but cultivate. God has made you to be creative. I remember I had a friend in elementary school. His name was Reuben McMillan. He was my best friend. I'll tell you maybe about Reuben one day. But Reuben was an excellent artist. Reuben could draw anything and everything. One of my favorite things to draw was tanks and AT-AT uh, walkers. I used to love, we used to just get in trouble because we'd draw so many things. But I wasn't as good as Reuben. And so I was always a little jealous of Reuben because he was so good. So I would say, hey, Reuben, would you mind drawing this for me? And then sometimes I'd put my name on it and he'd catch me and get me in trouble. Or I would take and I would trace what Reuben did and then call it my own. 
I'm not saying that there isn't some that are more creative than you. That's not the point of what I'm saying. I'm telling you that you were created to be creative. And you do this all through your life. You develop new habits. You form new ideas. When you go to work, you are a subduer. You are a cultivator. There's a project that needs you to overcome it. There's that stack of papers that needs your attention. There's grass that needs cutting. There's something for you to subdue and cultivate. You overcome the resistance that's there. And, and sometimes, if we're honest, that resistance starts when the alarm goes off and we have to get out of bed. The resistance starts early. But here's, here's what you get to do as a follower of Jesus Christ, as those who have this, this beautiful image that you were created to be creative, you were created to cultivate. You know what you get to do? You get to look at the day before you as a blank canvas of new mercies that you get to go after each day in the power of the Spirit, under the blood of the Lamb, for the glory of the Father. After our fellowship meals, I remember at a previous church, after our fellowship meals, when we would go and take the tables and put them away and prepare for the next day, everyone's cleaning up, everyone's throwing things away. Some are working behind the scenes. They're in the kitchen cleaning the dishes. And others of us were piddling around, talking to each other, watching everybody else work. And there's one thing that no one did because there was one person who did it the best. No one touched the mop because there was one man named Tim who he got the mop. And man, when he, I have never in my life still to this day seen a man work a mop the way that this man works a mop. I mean, he would throw it around and, I mean, he was almost like he was dancing with the mop. And he could mop a floor better and faster than anyone that we ever saw. Tim was the one who did the mopping. He was, you know what he was doing? He was subduing that dirty floor. And you get to live your life as a creator. As a cultivator, you live your life with the power of choice. And it's in that choice that things get messy. Because number three, we're in danger of misdirection. You and I are in danger of misdirection. Look at the passage. There's this warning in this passage, and it's a warning that we need to understand. We're told not to make images because we can allow the images to become the objects of our worship. We're on this side of a fall. And what, did we, what happened at the fall? Do you remember? We, on, on this side of the fall and at the fall, we traded the hallowed Word of God for our own hollow words. And in our creating, listen to this. I want to I say this, and some of you that are younger, maybe this will be a lot freeing for you. Some of you who are older, maybe this will cut that chain off from you. In our creating, we're tempted to be original. All these temptations to be original. God did not call you to be original. He called you to imitate Him. And the problem with the images today is that they're directionally challenged. We're in danger of idolatry. We, we create, but we forget that we can't 
created as God creates. He created ex nihilo out of nothing. We can only create ab obliqua, that is, from something. We cultivate in our autonomy, separated from God, and the result is a perversion, and I mean that, a perversion, a twisting of His good intentions. And so instead of us cultivating for God's glory, we pursue our own glory, and the result of our pursuits is selfish at the expense of others. We place ourselves as authorities, following our own intentions, forgetting that it was God who created the universe. And at the end of His creating the universe, He said, it is good. And it's from that good that we cultivate. Creation, as the professors say again, has been invested. Listen to this language. Creation has been invested by God with hidden potential that He calls us to actualize. You get to go and discover your giftings, discover your talents. You get to go in your work that you do, that you think is meager, that nobody cares about. And over and over in the Scriptures, Paul says, do everything that you do for the glory of God. Why is that? Because within that little thing that you think is insignificant, God has put His glory there for you to find. Remember what he told Job when Job is wanting an audience with God? And Job, God comes to Job and he says, oh, Job, I forgot to consult you when I created the world. Where were you, Job? Are you there? When the deer is thirsty, I create the stream so that the deer can go and satisfy his thirst. Nobody else knows that the deer satisfies his thirst, but I see that deer that I created satisfy his thirst with the brook that I created, and my heart is full, God says. You, beloved, get to go into every arena in life, every endeavor, and you get to go as an image bearer of God, cultivating, creating, subduing, bringing all of that under the subjection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Creation has been invested by God with hidden potentials that He calls you to actualize. Bach said, All music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the recreation of the soul. No wonder the guy was so good at writing music. No wonder several centuries later we're still talking about Bach because he did what he did for the glory of God. Eric Liddell, the Olympic gold medalist and star of chariots of fire, listen to what he said. He said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure. You're created to cultivate. But instead of creating or instead of cultivating the good, oftentimes we exchange the incorruptible with corruptible. We pursue the image of a better life. And those images are all around us. These images, that phony images, these plaster images, hollow images of the better life. 
And we pursue that. We give our life to that. You ever heard the phrase, pouring yourself into a project or pouring yourself into your work? You pour yourself into it. And sometimes it's because you believe the lie that there's a better life that you're supposed to pursue. A better life, not according to God's standard, but a better life according to the world. (coughs) So we do things like we keep up appearances. We select that perfect shot of our social media. We We get the perfect shot. And in reality, if they were to pan the camera out just a little bit, they would see the real mess of our lives. But we, we crop that out, right? We don't want anybody to see that. And when we pursue false images, look at the text. God responds with jealousy. Don't gloss over that. Don't try to rearrange that verse or try to downplay it. It is what it is. God responds with jealousy. The reason that he responds with jealousy is because he has made you for himself to bear his image. Not exchange corruptible for incorruptible. As Peter Lightheart reminds us, we, we, are images of God. When we venerate images, we're not merely exchanging the glory of God for the glory of creation. Listen to what he says. We give up our glory. We're alienated from our own vocation. No wonder our lives are filled with so much restlessness. Because we've forgotten, as Augustine said, that God has made us for Himself. And you're going to live a life of restlessness until you learn that only satisfaction comes from knowing and walking with God. When we become idolaters, when we believe the images of the better life, Our life is filled with tension because the images that the world puts up are false images. And deep down in our hearts, because every human is created in the image of God, every human has the capacity for relating with God, you know deep down in your heart that it's not right. So you live this life filled with tension. And we can't even agree anymore on what is right because we've separated ourselves from God's Word. Let me see if I can illustrate this with an example. Let me show you this picture right here. Now, this is a picture of a blue and black dress, right? Anybody see anything different? That's blue and black, isn't it? I'm sorry? Gold and white? No way. That's gold and white. No way. How many of you see gold and white? Oh, my goodness. Really? Gold and white? How many of you see black and blue? All right. It's, well, I agree. It's black and blue. What about this one? Let's try another one. What color is that shoe? Someone said blue? Did somebody say blue? Teal? You see teal? I see pink and white. Who sees pink and white? Okay, who sees something else? <laughs> well, here's the truth. 
those images that we saw, it's, it's either one or the other. It's either gold and black or black and whatever it was. They can't be both. Those images are distorted. They're illusions. But what happens? What happens when a whole society builds itself up on the belief that the dress is blue and black instead of gold and white. So you get little name badges, right? All of you who think that the dress is blue and black, you wear this pin. And all of you who think that the dress is another color, you wear another color. And then you separate over here, you separate over here. And we could carry that social experiment out to its fullest. But the bottom line between that little example is one is right and the other is wrong. And here's where it gets real challenging for us. Look at the Bible. The choices that we make, the lives that we build, the culture we create lasts for generations. You know, we talk a lot about the national debt. We talk a lot about the trillions of dollars worth of debt that our country is in. We hear language about things that concern us, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, paying the debt that we are accumulating for them. And as sad as that is, you know, I look at our own house. I look at our own denomination called Southern Baptist, and I keep hearing reports about baptisms are on the low. Church membership is on the decrease. All of these negative stories about all of these things that are currently happening in our denomination. And here's what I wonder. What are we passing to the next generation? What idolatry, and this is where we have to be really introspective. What idolatries are we putting forward to the next generation? We're giving them a decrease. We're giving them apathy. We're giving them wars over things that don't matter. What idolatries are we carrying forward to the next generation? Look at this church, for example. Look at this. You're sitting in a building that someone made in the 19, someone put together in the 1960s. Before that, the building over here was made in the latter part of the 1800s. That building lasted until this building was made. That's quite a long stint, isn't it? For both buildings. Now listen, this is, I'm not calling for a building program, all right? That's not what I'm asking. I'm just simply asking this question. You and I are the benefactors, in this case, positively, on a group of believers who paid it forward for us to be able to sit comfortably in this building. Their decisions have lasted for generations, positively. What's our contribution going to be? Right or wrong, the choices that we make last or has implications for generations that come after us. So what are we to do? If we're prone to idolatry, what are we to do? Number four, this morning, you and I need a course correction. Look at the text. Look at the text, verse 
5, you shall not bow down to serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Stop there. God does not punish someone for someone else's sin. You say, that's what I just read. Read it again. Look at the Bible. Those who hate me. There's a generational thing that's passed along. You're going to imitate the previous generation, whether you like it or not. Just live a little bit longer and you'll realize is that, I think it's the progressive commercial, you become just like your parents. It happens. Because you're ingrained in this capacity. Ezekiel rounds off the thought by saying this, The soul that sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteous of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And that's where the danger lies. We've got to make sure for our children, for their children's sake, that what we're building when we build First Baptist Starkville is going to last for generations, not as an idol to ourselves, but for the glory of God. And then look at what comes next. I love this. Look how quickly the Bible gets to grace. Look at this beautiful contrast in verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands. Another translation could say to the thousandth generation of those who love me. And don't miss this. What do they do? They keep my commandments. Redemption and obedience are not at odds. Look how quickly the Bible gets to grace. This God who is exalted, He reveals Himself through His Word. He didn't show us His form at Sinai, but later He's going to show us His glory as the Word. The eternal Son who takes on flesh and who dwells amongst us. He shows us His glory as a human. He shows, us his, he shows us His glory by becoming as we are. As Irenaeus says, the glory of God is a living human being. Wrap your mind around that thought. Our own image has been marred by the fall. The image of God has been ruined, not erased. And in the greatest display of love, God assumes our brokenness. And by assuming what is broken, He heals what has been broken. He dies for us. He dies for our sinfulness. And then He raises to offer us life. You and I are the broken. He is the unbreakable. We are the flawed. Oh, He's flawless. We struggle to define truth. He is truth. The Bible says in Colossians that He is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. Don't miss this. And for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He comes to us as we are, to make us as he is. And the amazing part of grace is how he comes. If Jesus was standing in a crowd, you'd look and you'd say, well, which one is he? He doesn't come in the form we expected because it's our expectations after the fall. The Bible says in Isaiah, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. Listen to this part. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. As John says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. Here's this beautiful contrast again. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The admonition for you this morning is simple. Don't make images. Instead, be made in his image. Would you pray with me? Our prayer that is simple this morning, Lord, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. We are the clay. Mold us and make us after thy will. Here we are waiting yielded and still. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Dr. Andy Brown, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Startville in Startville, Mississippi. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to follow Hearing is Believing on Facebook and rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us at hearingisbelieving.org.